Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage from the Bible, we read it with you together and we unpack it, giving all different insights and understandings from it. Today with me, as always, I have Lachlan Miller. Hello. And Morgan Carter. Hello. Hello, everyone. How are we all doing? Good. Yeah, yeah, all right. Excited. Excited. This is episode four, uh, which is really exciting. Um, and for, for those at home a bit, the, uh, the to take a peek under the, the, the curtain, um, it's really exciting for us because it's up and released for everyone. And we actually mm. really... Um, we thank everyone that's like that's listened and watched and all your great feedback. It's um really encouraging to hear. And if you if you want to keep doing it, send it send it <laughs> send it through. But uh, it's been really nice to see all the comments um flooding and um to get all that uh, really good feedback. And we just we just love doing that, and we love that you're able to to listen to it. How's everyone? How's everyone been? How's their their weeks been? Busy. Yeah, I think last time we recorded, I was lamenting over how insanely busy life was. Uh, thankfully, the last few months calmed down a little bit, which just gave uh, Emily and myself just more time to do life as a newly married couple. But the next few months are looking quite busy again. So the lull is almost over, back into the busyness. Back into the busyness. And there's the funny thing was, last episode I said I was just about to get married, mm-hmm. and now I am. Ooh. So and I also share your same um, experience of hope. The honeymoon was was nice, and it was nice and chill, and not, not so busy as you would hope. But then everything else, it just ramped up and got back to being real busy, and back to work, and just life, life again. Yes. Morgan, have you been? Yeah, good. Just got back from a four-week trip to the UK. So nice oh, break. Very nice. Feeling very refreshed and ready to go. Mm. Is it warm? It's, is it quite warm over there? Yeah, it's hot at the moment. It was really nice. Really nice change. By hot, you mean like 22, Oh, not that degrees. hot, but like compared yeah. to here. Mm, yeah. Yeah. All right. So what episode or what episode, what chapter are we uh, doing today? We are up to chapters eight and nine of Matthew. Perfect. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. Please pause now and read those chapters if you haven't already. In these chapters, we witness Jesus' power and authority as he heals the sick, frees the demon-possessed, exerts control over nature, offers forgiveness, redefines tradition, and conquers death. So reading chapter 8 here, this is now sort of leading into Jesus' ministry and Jesus's and these are specifically Jesus's miracles now, mm. right? And the point of this, if if I'm not mistaken, is to sort of prove who he is, right? Mm. And and the reason why we've we've got all these accounts of what he's doing. But yeah, we see chapter eight begins with him coming down from the mountainside. So last episode, we went through three whole chapters, Sermon on the Mount, which was big sermon of Jesus, and now we're into the story element, as we discussed a few weeks ago, actually is that Matthew just goes sermon story, sermon story. And so now we see all these miracles Jesus is doing in the course of his ministry. And I think this is why we are meant to believe what he's just taught about. Like, why should we believe this guy has any authority whatsoever to teach? It's because he now proves it by his deeds. I like the variety of the different miracles too that are Mm. in this chapter, Um, from storms to demons to diseases. I think it's a good variety. And there's also good variety in the people being healed. Like it's all those who are like on the fringe. Mm. Like we've got those who are diseased by leprosy, so they're on the fringe of society. We've got those who 
are not Jewish and so they're on the fringe of Jewish society. We've got those who are female and in this culture that puts you on the fringe almost instantly. And so Jesus's miracles really center on some of the outcasts of society. Um, Something that I noticed in the beginning of this story um, where they say the crowds followed him, these great crowds, so imagining that happening, but then later on in four it says, see that you say nothing to anyone but go. How would that work? Like everyone's seen it. Why would he want him to say nothing? Yeah, the whole like secrecy idea that we see a few times in these chapters actually. I suspect, and it's not laid out clearly for us, but I suspect it's because Jesus was doing these miracles to confirm who he was but didn't want that to be misunderstood on a bigger level. And so I think the very first story is a really good example because he says, uh, go be clean. He heals this guy of leprosy. And then he tells him to go present himself to the priests and offer the appropriate sacrifices that is recorded in the Old Testament law. Mm. And so this man's healing would have been a witness to those priests who would have gone, who would have had to do some type of investigation just to accept the sacrifices of someone claiming to have been healed. And so the priest would have done their due diligence and investigated this man's claims. And there's suddenly like a big calling card that Jesus is who he says he is. But at the bigger like crowd level, he's trying not to just have everyone be aware that he's a miracle worker because I think that changes the dynamic. Like if people only come to Jesus for the fact that he can heal, that's not his ultimate purpose. People may get the wrong idea if they hear of him just as a miracle worker. But at the same time, miracles are so important and essential to what he does because it proves who he is. And so I suspect that's why he goes for the weird dynamic of, yeah, we're in front of a crowd. I've just healed this guy. Go tell the priests about this healing, but don't go advertising it too broadly yet. Yeah. Mm. Fair. Do you think there's a, uh, also maybe a bit of reverse psychology? In it? <laughs> or, yeah. or like, you know, it, it, by telling them not to do that thing, it and then forces them to. It's I, I don't know. You know, it probably probably not. It's it probably that's probably not his intent. It's probably more the um, the more the humility and humble humbleness. Um, but it's not a bad bad thing. It's it's spreading the word. But it, but I I think it's more along the lines of not to spread it like wildfire where this thing come gets out of control mm. and it starts to mix or dilute the message of who he is or or what's or what's happening or even just inviting the wrong types of people those that have different motives because mm. uh, like what we're, we're seeing here he's he's trying to just go to the fringes um and those select certain certain people also as a fun fact um when jesus sends this guy to go do sacrifices as a thanks for being healed of leprosy as commanded in the old testament law this is what he was meant to sacrifice Two birds, wood, yarn, and a hyssop on the first day. And then on the eighth day, two male lambs and a ewe, flour, and oil. So, like, Jesus healed him, but, like, financially, I don't know where this guy is at the moment. (laughs) It's just like, oh, no, I've got to do all all these things. Which doesn't at all take away from the fact that Jesus, through his mercy, has healed this guy of a deadly skin disease. Mm. But I just thought it was a fun fact to look at what the Old Testament actually says is the uh, required sacrifice. Mm. for that type of healing. But it just shows that Jesus is still respecting the Old Testament and the Jewish customs mm. and the Jewish in the Jewish law and Moses's law. Um and not just blatantly saying like we as Christians no longer have to 
follow those, do all those sort of sacrifices each year and um, all the sort of more Jewish traditions. But he's being respectful of it whilst also bringing the, his new covenant and his new way in, in, in it all. Because what the Old Testament is trying to capture there is the thankfulness. Mm. Like if you've just been healed of some devastating disease, the way you express thankfulness to the God who has cured you of this disease is by preventing these sacrifices. And so I think as long as we still capture the idea of thankfulness um, and direction to God and appeal to God when these type of things happen, I think we are still very much in line with what the Old Testament is desiring out of these sacrifices. Does that um, lead on to the, what it has in this Bible, the 10 fulfillment statements that then there's other fulfillment, then there's these other fulfillment citations. And I wasn't quite sure what these meant, but it, at least, at the very least in this Bible, it has um, Jesus' virgin birth fulfills Isaiah, the escape to and from Egypt fulfills Hosea. The murder of the male in, uh, infant of Bethlehem fulfills Jeremiah. Jesus' childhood in Nazareth fulfills the unknown prophecy. Jesus establishes his ministry in Galilee fulfilling Isaiah. Jesus heals disease fulfilling Isaiah. Jesus fulfills the roles of the servant of Isaiah. Jesus speaks in parables fulfilling Psalm Psalm seven uh, seventy eight two and two Chronicles. And then it then it keeps it keeps going on um, in in this Bible saying these are all. What Jesus is doing is fulfilling all these, all these different things. I suspect what your Bible, because you've got a big fat study Bible there, is just capturing whenever Matthew quotes the Old Testament, your Bible has put together a little table and gone, hey, here is where these quotes are coming from. And Matthew has used them to show that Jesus is fulfilling so many expectations. And so one of the ones in our passage, for instance, is in verse 17. Um, where he quotes Isaiah and it says, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And so Matthew says, hey, all these miracles that we're witnessing in this chapter was directly expected of the Messiah because of what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah, which is that the Messiah would take up our infirmities and bear our diseases. Like on that real physical healing level, that was part of the work of the Messiah. The, the varying gospels, are all the miracles similar, different? Do they all are they all reflected the same, written the same, or are there like does Matthew have different miracles that are that are written than let's say maybe in Luke or in John or mm. how different are they in the different gospels? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem we call them the synoptic gospels, which basically means that they seem to have had a similar range of sources. And so they cover fairly similar miracle stories. What we find in these two chapters is that Matthew takes the well-known miracle stories we find in Mark and Luke and shortens them down to like shockingly short. So when we come to chapter nine, I'll point out that in a bit more detail. But yes, they're very similar miracle stories. I know as I was reading through these ones, I'm far more familiar with the gospel of Mark than I am with Matthew. And I was like, oh, that sounds really familiar to something I looked up in Mark. But in Mark, it's like 20-something verses, and in Matthew, it's less than nine. And you're like, wow, Matthew was just trying to get through content and not really (laughs) spending the time fleshing out the stories. But they're all very, very similar Mm. in many ways based on the same gospel traditions. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, makes it less confusing of why they may have chosen different 
different things. I am really impressed with the centurion yes. in verse 5, as, as is Jesus, so it's nice to be in good company there. Uh, but this guy is not a Jew. He's not waiting for a Jewish Messiah to come. But he goes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick. Could you please heal them? And Jesus seems willing. And then he goes the next step of going, and I know how powerful you are. You're so powerful. You don't even need to come anywhere near my servant. You could just command it to happen. And he understands that because he has authority. And that's what he explains in those few verses, that he has authority to tell people what to do and it will happen even if he's not physically present. And he truly believes that Jesus has this exact same type of authority, which mm. is so impressive. And Jesus really praises him for it. Thoughts on the centurion, Morgan? Yeah, where he says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, just to trust in it. Yeah. And then Jesus gives a little few sentences of teaching where he seems to slam the Jewish nation for not responding as well as this outsider, this, this Gentile has responded. Mm. and says that the subjects of the kingdom, so the current Jewish nation, will be thrown outside into darkness. But people like this centurion will sit and feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm just going to go back while we're on this and ask what a centurion is because I'm listening, hoping that I'll work it out. Yeah, yeah but... of course. <laughs> um, a centurion was a, um, a commanding position in the Roman army. They looked after 100 soldiers or a century's worth of soldiers. So, yeah, he was a senior military position who had command over 100 soldiers. I get the um, centurion's sort of devotion and go, and sort of faith going to Jesus and, and asking of this and, um, and saying that, you know, you, you, you're able to do this without being present um, at, at his servant. What I don't get is the servant um, because he's, he's describing how the servant is um, obedient to the centurion, but it doesn't sound like the servant is obedient to God or to Jesus. Um, now, I, I, maybe I'm overthinking it or, or something, but is to me when I read that, I'm like, oh, yeah, the centurion, but the servant, I'm like, well, in all these other accounts, someone who's going up up to, to Jesus um, has either great faith um, and, and will and making the effort to... But it doesn't describe that the servant has great faith to God. And so I'm like a bit confused at why Jesus would heal the servant just based on the request of the centurion man. Have you, Josh or Morgan, ever prayed for a loved one to be healed of something even if they're not a Christian? Yes. Yep. I think that is exactly <laughs> what is happening here. Of God listens to the prayers of those who belong to him. Their prayers may not be about themselves. In fact, that's better probably if we're not always praying about mm. ourselves. But God listens to his children. He listens to what they have to say. And I think Jesus here is responding to the faith of that centurion. In the same way in chapter 9 where Jesus heals the dead girl, like this was a young child. I don't know if we can assume there was any faith on her part. But her father comes to Jesus begging for his help. And Jesus again responds to that man's faith and heals her. Mm. And so I think God listens to his children regardless of what they're praying for. Yeah. Now that makes perfect sense. And the minute you started saying, do you, do you pray for anyone else? <laughs> I'm like, 
Yeah, now I get it now. <laughs> now I get it. No, 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 that makes sense. I guess you, I, for me, I just forget it. And I don't know if anyone else would find that. But like you forget that because you think it's just specifically between Jesus and the person, hmm. not, you know, you know, art, like like what we do if we pray over someone or uh, or someone else that may not actually be physically present with us or asking mm. asking God. And this is just the just the same. The centurion man is asking Jesus, asking God of something. So what we see from these first three healings is that despite Jesus's command that they should be fairly secret, lots and lots of people are now coming to him. And so what I think he does is he retreats across the lake. Like that's halfway through chapter eight. Suddenly he's like, I'm out of here. See you all later. I'm crossing the lake. But just before he does that, he has two really interesting interactions with two disciples who come up and they're like, hey, before you leave, can I do this before we all head off together? Like, can I go bury my father before we head off together? What do we think about that? That seems pretty brutal from Jesus. That one is very... Very brutal. I was like, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And like, oh, okay. Did he actually follow him? Like, did he go through with it and, and not? Or could he? Could the man not do it? I don't think we're ever told. Mm. I think it's important to point out that in the Jewish law code, if your father was to pass away, to bury them, you had to bury them within 24 hours and you were excused from every other element of social life in Jewish circles. Like you could break the Sabbath to bury a father. Like there were, you could almost break every law to do your duty as a son to bury your father. So what it seems more likely is that this man's father isn't actually dead. Like if he's he having a conversation with Jesus, it is highly likely that his father is alive and well. So what he seems to be asking for is for an indefinite period of time. So he's not saying, give me 24 hours. And Jesus is saying, no. It seems more like he's saying, hey, let me wait till I get to a point of life where I feel more comfortable doing this. But even if it's the situation where, hey, his dad has just died, the point Jesus is trying to communicate is that following him, following Jesus takes the highest priority. Because it was a, it was of great importance for, for the Jewish people as, as a duty of the child mm. to, to bury the dead. And this is saying Jesus is higher than that duty, that your duty to Jesus is higher than that. Yeah, exactly takes it to the extreme so morgan thoughts on the foxes have dens and the birds have nests but no son of man has a place to lay his head yeah mine says foxes have holes i'm not really sure <laughs> well like a fox <laughs> What's a, going on there? <laughs> a fox hole or a fox den it would be sort of interchangeable in this yeah it's um, just and, yeah random and choices like fox and bird and then it goes straight to son of man so, like, I, my understanding would be that the foxes, so foxes have holes or dens and birds have nests, would be the animals have their place that they always go back to. Mm. Um, they have sort of a home, like we have a home that we always go back to. And this is then stating, but the Son of Man has no place to go back to. That sounds really sad. Yeah. It's yeah, actually yeah. really sad. <laughs> and, yeah, so Jesus has no home like these foxes and birds have. What you then have to wonder is why he says this in response to a disciple saying, I will follow you wherever you go. Like, again, this is another one of those brutal Jesus responses of you have a disciple saying, I will follow you. And Jesus is like, I have no home. Does that mean like, I'll follow you anywhere you go because it's ongoing. You're not going to stop. Like I'll keep following you. Yeah. Well, Jesus's words, he feel to me more like rebuke than an encouragement. So what I suspect is Jesus saw into the heart of this disciple 
who was like, I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus is like, you will have no home. Like the son of man, me, I have no home. And I suspect that spoke really deeply to this disciple. And so we have these two disciples who claim they will follow Jesus anywhere as he leaves the crowds, as he goes across the lake. But what we get is two case studies of people who ultimately I don't think actually cut it. Mm. People who probably didn't actually follow Jesus when he then finally left that region and went across the lake. And this sounds very similar to the the wealthy man going up to to Jesus saying, mm. "I've done everything. Uh, I've done everything right. Can I follow you?" And his, and Jesus replies, "Well, the, you know, sell all your possessions mm. and then follow me." And he can't. You know, it's all these. It's the uh, I think it's a in a, in a very similar vein of um, pointing out why you what these aspects of your life that you're holding on to and that you need to let go to be able to follow Jesus. Yeah, because like selling all your possessions and giving it to the poor is not actually, I think, a command to be put on every single Christian. No. But Jesus in that moment saw through to what was the one thing holding that person back mm. from fully being a follower of his. And I think that's the same in this passage that we're looking at with these two disciples who make these comments and Jesus responds is, he sees through to where they're actually at and the barrier they need to overcome to put Jesus as their highest priority. When I read the follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, I see that as a kind of, well, you can come but leave the others who don't want to follow to do their own thing. Like mm. that's their decision. Almost a bit like sassy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> sassy Jesus is my yeah. favourite Jesus. <laughs> it's like, you know, that those that um, that do not have faith are already dead. Yeah. yeah. Like, mm. Yeah, he seems to use it in a spiritual sense there. Mm. Like, the like that's spiritually fine, you dead, stay there, but do your own thing. Yeah, yeah, let the spiritually dead bury the physical yeah. dead. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to follow me, you won't have a true home. And we're about mm. to jump on a boat. About to jump on a boat, and it's going to get stormy. Well, they didn't know that at the time, did they? No, they 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 didn't. And and it's in other, other Gospels that they really expand upon this. This story, and you've got this sort of these visions of like Jesus falling asleep, and them going, "How can you, how can you be sleeping in a storm like this?" And then I always imagine a sort of a grumpy Jesus getting up and like <laughs> dispersing the storm, of like you've, um, give little faith. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out when I used to read this story as a kid, I pictured like big like pirate ship type thing. Jesus is like warm off in the bottom of the ship like doesn't really know there's a big storm going on so of course he fell asleep makes sense but like we're picturing like to us what looks more like a canoe than anything else like it's there's no like levels to this boat so jesus is just like in the wind in the rain and asleep my mind just goes straight to like a giant noah's ark style boat yeah (laughs) which like it's a fair place for your mind to go because those are the boats we're more familiar with yeah but this would have been a simple judean fishing craft that they were going to roll across the lake in. And so, like, Jesus is actually, like, falling asleep in an impressive location, if anything. And I can't even get to sleep at the best of times. And then this man's here. He really is the Messiah if he's being able to sleep through this storm. But, yeah, then they wake him up and he criticises their faith, which is always a little bit brutal. But mm. then he saves them from what was a pretty nasty storm. I wonder if that's – he's criticising because – they don't trust that they will get out of the storm, mm. that, they, in that they are specifically going to Jesus about this. It's that sort of like um, if a leader was to, uh, was tr- or a teacher was trying to, to sort of teach their students and saying, 
well, what do you think? Or try and try and solve the problem yourself before going going coming coming to me. Sort of use that critical thinking. You know, I imagine maybe that he's sort of rebu- rebuking, 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 rebuking them. English, I believe in you. <laughs> rebuking them because, like, well, you just immediately came to me when times got tough. Um, where was your faith that we that the storm would just pass? Um, or that we would get out of this or, or something that you could have done. And you got to remember these disciples were there what is probably just a few days ago when Jesus gave this big sermon. And part of this big sermon was do not worry. Mm. Your heavenly father will look after you. He looks after the birds. He looks after the, the flowers. He will look after you. And the disciples in their first opportunity to live out the practical teachers of Jesus just fail instantly and run to him for help, which... Like, we don't want to criticize people who run to Jesus for help. I feel like that's actually a very positive response that I would encourage in Mm. anyone that I interact with in a daily life. They ran to him with a lack of faith rather than with faith. Mm. I have a bit of a personal story with this kind of calms the storm, if you're happy Mm. for me to share. Absolutely. Um, Before I got baptized and really new to faith, I went on a prayer walk down at local beach in Cronulla and I was very skeptical. I was like, give me a sign. Like I was questioning everything and my friend from the church said, go for a prayer walk. And I was like, yeah, okay. The roughest seas, it was nighttime. And I did my prayer walk and I turned around and for about five seconds, it was just calm, just mm-hmm. calm water. And I was like, whoa. And for when I was reading through this, it was just like a question of like the power and where it says, what sort of man is this that even the wind sees or the winds and sea obey him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I saw that firsthand. And like in this, this is obviously a very drastic situation in the boat with the storm, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, very That's similar experience because yeah. we, we worship a God who has complete power of diseases, has complete power over nature, yeah. and then as we hit the very end of Chapter 8, has complete power over the demonic as well. Mm. Oh, the pigs. <laughs> The poor pigs—is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's just. Yeah, I was reading it before, <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow, it's a lot of bacon. It's it's a lot of it's, it's a lot of wasted bacon." <laughs> In uh, the Gospel of Mark, where this story appears, it specifies that there was about two thousand pigs. Just so you're aware, mm. which is why, like, it's a it's very different from sort of everything we've read up to this point um, in terms of the in terms of the miracles, and I think. This one's a little bit newer for me, the sort of the casting out demons, because I think I've grown up in sort of that uh, church cultural environment where we don't really like to sort of talk about the demonic or the demon side. Mm. We don't like the Old Testament is sometimes really hard to sometimes discuss with all its different um, ups and downs that it goes in there. And sometimes I think we're a bit afraid to sort of talk about demons and things, maybe Mm. out of a out of a fear thing or. that people have differing opinions on what demons might look like or um, whether or not demons are a thing, but like clearly it's saying that they are here. Mm. So growing up with that, it's always a bit newer for me, you know, casting out demons. Um, sometimes I feel like it's just glossed over, but even even here in this one, talking to the demons and the de- demons pleading with Jesus, mm. you know, not only is uh, a humans pleading with Jesus, demons are pleading with Jesus going, no, send us, send us to the pigs. And what gets me is before the appointed time like the demons know they're on the losing side Mm. like that that i find crazy i like to think that they at least 
in some bit of way think they have a chance of winning against God, which is insane. But I think when they're like, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know their final fate. They know that Jesus is winning the ultimate victory against them. And they're like, well, we know it's not yet. So why are you here, God? I'd be just curious to see what a demon-possessed man would have looked like, like if they looked normal or if they were just red man with horns. Red man. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, that's one way of like, you know, it's over over history it's painted. But I think one of the scarier thoughts, it just like would just look like you and me. Yeah. And I would th- and also it would probably come up in different forms, but maybe very specific like if specific to you. Like to your question, Morgan, in the Mark version of this story, they say that they tried to chain this man up and he kept breaking out of the chains. That's so and scary. So there's some like the supernatural element is very obvious in many ways. What is also interesting and potentially a total side tangent is that in the Mark version of this story, there's one demon possessed man, just one. And yet in this Matthew version, there's two, which could raise question marks. I don't know about you guys. Any comments on that? I think it's fine. Like, I think it's fine. Like, <laughs> if we're just, you know, like, I think us, us here or, or have faith and have faith over, over the, you know, these books in front of us. So, mm. so we're, I think to, to a certain extent, we're always going to be fine with the discrepancies because we know, know it. Maybe it was just a, maybe Mark just was maybe referring to like, it's demons overall rather than specifying. I don't know. Yeah, there's always the option that the second demon possessed man was just not as uh, scary or memorable as mm. the first demon possessed man. What's interesting is that in a lot of the miracles that Matthew records, he often puts two people at the center of it. And the Jewish law code only really validated things when there was two witnesses. And mm. so at least in our chapters, so there's a healing here of two demon possessed men at the end of eight. And then there'll be two blind men at the end of nine. And in both of those situations, they explicitly call Jesus the son of God. Like they give him this this messianic title from the Old Testament. And then there's two of them to actually witness to this title being given. However, whenever Matthew records just one person being healed, that title doesn't appear. So it's almost like he's trying to really affirm that every time Jesus's messianic title is given, Here's the required two witnesses. So do you think that Matthew or, or sort of the different authors were maybe a bit more con- like, like Matthew were a bit more concerned about the linkage or the upholding the Jewish traditions in their writing where maybe Mark was less concerned about it? Maybe that's why it was one demon rather than two. I think Matthew in particular is very concerned with Judaism and the Jewish law. I mean, as we said in our very first episode, one of the reasons for this entire gospel is he wants to see his his countrymen saved. He wants to see other Jews saved. And so he writes in an exceptionally Jewish way. Now, I like to think that they really were two demon-possessed people and Matthew's included both of them. And there's a beautiful symmetry there of they also happen to use this title. And so Matthew's like, great, two witnesses, perfectly fulfused the Jewish law, definitely will include both of them in my gospel. Whereas Mark has then just gone, ah, there was kind of one scarier demon-possessed man who they kept trying to chain up and he kept breaking free. And so I'll just focus on the power of Jesus, whereas Matthew here is focused on the identity of Jesus Mm. while explaining the exact same story. Speaking of stories that appear in Mark and now we're reading about in Matthew, 
The next one, the next story we have after the demon-possessed man is the really famous healing of the paralytic man, where in the other gospel versions of this story, you've got people pulling apart the roof of a house and lowering this paralytic man down into the house in front of Jesus. Mm. And yet Matthew has absolutely like taken away every interesting element of the story, which is like the fun bit when you read it in Mark and Luke and just kept like the absolute bare bones. Like you can't, you can't do this one in Sunday school. Like you do, you do do the one where it's all the the house is being, you know, you role play it all in Sunday school. It's a very visual thing for, for kids and it's really easy. This one, yeah, it's, it's taken it all, taken it all out. But maybe that's because we're, we're not trying to get so caught up on, on it, on the breaking of one's roof, um, and going. But then, in the same breath, that's showing their devotion to try and get mm. to to Jesus. And it was the devotion of the friends to get this man, this paralyzed man, to it. Now, sort of thought of thinking about, it. So, yeah, why, why, why would you not put that in? I mean, paper's pretty uh, valuable in the mm. first century, so maybe he was just keen to get as many stories down as he could, and didn't mm. want to include those type of details there's also just the option that um, the jewish audience he was writing to already had a whole bunch of different contexts and underlying beliefs so this is this is one of the stories that in its mark version i use evangelistically often because jesus here this man comes before him he's paralyzed he wants to be healed and jesus says your sins are forgiven and the man's probably like great but can i walk please and so it's not at all what this person was expecting. And in the Mark version of this story, the, the Jewish leaders who are around is like, how dare you, Jesus? Only God can forgive sins. Now, in the Matthew version, they accuse him of blasphemy, but they don't spell out why he's accused of blasphemy. And so I think what we see is all these underlying Jewish assumptions is they see the phrase, I forgive your sins, and instantly go, oh, only God could do that. What is Jesus claiming here? Whereas in the Mark version, he spells that out with many more words. And so Matthew can do away with a bunch of those extra words because of his audience. Did the gospel authors know that other writers were writing? Do we know any of that? At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he says, um, many others have written accounts of this Mm. and I have done my research well. And so here's another version of it. Yeah, And so at least Luke was aware of multiple different accounts. Mm. Given how similar Matthew, Luke, and Mark are as Gospels, there's some sort of interplay of sources going on there Mm. that they were using each other. We don't know exactly which one was first. Most scholars assume Mark was first and then Matthew and Luke used Mark to help construct their Gospels. Mm. But I think they were definitely aware, apart from whoever was first, the rest of them were very aware because they were using the other sources. I just wonder if it's one of those things of, oh, well, Mark's got it. Oh, I don't need to cover this bit. Or like, you know, just knowing that you don't have to go into great detail because someone else has, has written it. But I, I like what you're saying better in terms of more that the, the the context is all there for the reader to know exactly without having to waffle on. I think we shouldn't just overlook the rest of this story, which is Jesus is accused of blasphemy. And this is why I love this story evangelistically. And he goes, okay, you think I can't forgive sins because only God can do that. What is harder? Like what is the more difficult thing to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What do you think? How, how would you answer Jesus' question? Which one is harder? 
get up and walk. Yeah. Because like one only God can do, and everyone in this passage seems to agree that only God can forgive sins, but no one can prove it. Mm. So what is harder is to say, get up and walk, because that requires immediate proof. And so Jesus is saying, you don't think I could do the first? Let me prove I could do the first by also doing the second, which gives you a visible, tangible sign that he can walk. I have that authority. So believe me when I say I have the authority to also forgive his sins. Like how, out of curiosity, how familiar are you with this one? Because this one's in in my, I think both Lockie and my experience, it's quite a sort of a famous one in our minds. Yeah, I've never heard of it never before heard. this mm. episode. Hmm. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Well, then I wish we were reading Mark right now. So you could <laughs> capture it in more than just how many verses is this? Eight verses. The Mark yeah. version has a lot more than eight verses and there's a crowded house. There's a roof being ripped apart. There's a man being lowered in front of Jesus. There's a big confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders about whether he can forgive sins or not. Mm. And then the paralyzed man just kind of struts out of there after Jesus heals him. It's a really great story. Wouldn't yeah, recommend. Sounds, I think I just kind of grouped them together as lots of miracles, not specifically yeah. which ones. Like I knew that they were there, but not mm. why and which ones. And then we see the author inserting himself into the story. <laughs> the calling of Matthew. Is this the same Matthew? Yeah, I believe so. I believe that this is the tax collector Matthew who is writing this gospel and was one of the 12 disciples and then one of the apostles of the church. And he's included his own calling story here. Which is sort of gives authentic, uh, the authenticity, authenticity, the... Or the authenticity to Matthew to the writer, so we know that he is a disciple, mm. um, and he is he, he was he was there, um, including that. Otherwise, we wouldn't. We just have to assume he was around, or get or just sort of getting these recounts. Well, I mean, it proves. Like when I read this story, the calling of Matthew, I'm happy to say, great, Matthew nine through to the end of the book, amazing. Matthew, the disciple, was there. Let's trust what he says. Mm. But doesn't this prove he wasn't around for the first eight chapters? I guess you could think that. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> now you mention it. Now you mention it, yeah. I just thought, well. I agree. I think this is an amazing moment of authenticity to see the author and where he fits into the story. Yeah, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting mm. in the tax booth. Mm. Sorry, no, yeah. you go. <laughs> I was like, is it is it a more of a like a like a story literature thing of where of deciding where I'm going to put myself in it and maybe thinking this is the right spot because especially because this is right before chapter 10 of the call. When you read further on into this, um, he seems to be questioning a few things and where he says those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. So it sounds like he's questioning it but he's just apparently written the whole before this part. Yeah. Well, isn't So what you just quoted is what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Yeah, and so Jesus is saying, he was getting criticism. So Matthew mm. decides to follow Jesus. He throws a huge feast because he's a wealthy man. Jesus is uh, no stranger to parties and rocks up to this party and gets a heap of criticism because he's suddenly having dinner with all these sinners. And mm. Jesus' statement is beautiful. It's those who are sick, those who need saving that I'm here for. Like they are the reason I've come. Of course, I'm going to spend time with them. And that sort of harks back to what you're saying of the fringes. You know, he's not here for those that already have faith. He's here for the for the sick. He's there for the, the fringe people that are just on, on the edge. As for why this story falls here, I just assume in the timeline, 
as Jesus has crossed the lake into this territory, this is where Matthew lived, and this is where Matthew started to follow Jesus. And after he spends the next two years following Jesus, I assume he has more conversations with Jesus than just this one. <laughs> and he has more conversations with the other disciples who have been around for more of the story than this one. Mm. Mm. So I think it's very fair to assume that at some point he discussed, hey, what have you guys been up to for the past year? <laughs> let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, let, let me just take in what else you've been up to. Mm. Yes, I'm only physically present from chapter nine onwards, but like I'm sure he had many, many conversations about mm. what happened before he joined the team. And he obviously, yeah, he obviously believes it from hearing all the stories. Yeah. Mm. And it might be the fact that where it says, like, you can just imagine him sitting with the tax collectors and sinners. He's like, this is legit. Like, it must have all been true and happened. Gotta love the Pharisees always there. Like, always. always just, they always just seem to be around the corner, <laughs> just judging everything that, 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 that happens. And then they also must have gotten quite sick of every time Jesus, like, bringing them up or, like, rebuking them or you know well i mean the next story is them attempting to rebuke him right yes they're like why are you not fasting like have do we have any experience of fasting well i just i just preached on it oh really what did you say about (laughs) fasting in your sermon josh what did i say about fasting um it was a fasting biblical fasting is an attitude thing we as christians today no longer are no longer required because jesus is um, made the fulfillment. Um, so it's no longer a sort of a yearly requirement if we look at things like the Day of Atonement. And it's no longer sort of mandatory for to do all those sort of traditions. But for us, it's an attitude time to ready ourselves and our bodies and our minds to spend intentional time listening to God, not necessarily just um, praying and asking of things, but just spending time listening. So m- my whole sermon about fasting was not to get so bogged down in the um, the actions of it, but the the purpose of why you might might do it is d- taking out anything that might distract you from spending that intentional time listening to God. I'm glad you said that fasting is something we should still be doing. Yes, because I agree it's not the the traditional Jewish practice of at this time every year we will fast. Because Jesus very clearly says, um, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. Mm. So fasting is something that as Christians, we are meant to do. Mm -hmm. But when I think about my life, it is a huge hole. Like the 40-hour famine is a thing that in Australia is pretty popular as a way to raise money for, I think it's cancer research, right? I thought it was children in Africa. (laughs) Okay. It raises money for something. And I did it as a kid. And you do 40 hours without food. Mm. and But apart from that, and maybe like 24 hours before a blood test, fasting is not like a regular part of my Christian experience. Mm. And yet Jesus says here that, hey, they're not fasting at the moment because I'm with them. Yeah. Like this is party time. I am present. But once I leave, fasting will be normal. We'll come to another story in the gospel where the disciples try to cast out a demon and it doesn't leave. And Jesus is like, oh, that demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. And then we get to other bits of the New Testament. And fasting is a very normal, regular part of the Christian experience. And yet, as a really raw, honest reflection on my Christian experience, is that it's not a common part at all. It was funny. It was on the Sunday morning when I was getting ready to to preach. I was having breakfast and it dawned on me. I'm like, <laughs> maybe I should have actually practiced this before I go and, go and, go and preach about it. About it, but it's something that um, in our fast-paced 21st century life, where 
we have a culture of always being busy, and especially in this country, of always just being busy. We forget to, to sort of do these um, these practices. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, The in my sort of research, the word fasting in the 1600s was at an all-time high in popularity and sort of world literature was at an all-time high. Hmm. Whereas it got to the 1800s, it dipped down. So it was an all-time low in popularity. It's only until it hit the 2000s that it has now risen back in popularity out sort of growing it all. I would argue that is because we are society and the church is now coming and learning about the health beneficial way of fasting and not the biblical religious version of fasting and that's why we sort of see these this this trend in world literature uh, which then makes it even even more difficult because there's this disconnect because we read fasting and you know do you think of the biblical version of it or do you think of the health um, physical um, trend of of it all but when you read the word prayer and fasting and those two words come about in the bible about 500 odd times do you recognize and take in both words or do you just read the word like do you let the word fasting wash over you and just take in the word prayer and do you practice the prayer part but not the fasting part it is mentioned so many times but there is this disconnect and even here saying that we should, um, like you know Jesus you know saying that we should still be fasting do we still do it you know are we still are we still practicing this thing now i i believe that we can sort of um not just solely fast and food because it can be actually quite unhealthy for people. Some people's bodies react uh, negatively uh, to it. To not eating. Yeah. To, to, to not eating. But then that's um, – and, and then we look back at uh, Jesus' time in the wilderness and how he fasted for 40 days mm. and 40 nights and he was hungry. You know, the point is not to starve to starve yourself or to torture yourself mm. uh, in this. The point is – that it's an attitude switch, it's a behavioral switch to get your mind into spending that time time with God. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to spend time with God. It's taking that intentional, it's intentionally taking time to spend with God by removing sort of uh, that nourishment that you might have. We are going to have to change Josh's title on this podcast <laughs> to The Expert. <laughs> So welcome to the newbie expert and newbie on fasting podcast. <laughs> on f- it is only because I <laughs> that the sermon is still fresh in my mind after last week. The um, yeah, I could keep going, but yeah, that's the general gist <laughs> from from my own understanding. Can we set the um listeners a challenge? Yes. Is that all right? And also ourselves a challenge. So when we come to our next recording. How about we fast in preparation for that? We had breakfast this morning together as a team, but how about next time we come to record? We fast in preparation for it. And I want to set the challenge to our listeners that like, this is something that biblically is meant to be normative for Christians. And I agree it's not the focus of the passage. So in some ways, focusing on fasting in this tiny little section of Matthew probably wasn't what anyone expected to be our takeaway. But choose a time. Choose tomorrow. If you're listening to this, choose tomorrow. Fast. Spend that time purposely pursuing God in that moment by giving up something. And spend that and make sure you spend that time with God. Don't just like look at the clock and start, okay, I've got however many minutes until I can then eat again or whatever you're fasting on. Make sure you, are, like Lockley said, spend that time with God. Make that intentional. And we'd love to hear about how that goes 
yeah. in our comments and share I'm it with saying. us and send us a message. Yeah. So the next story we have is another one that I am super familiar with from looking at Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep bringing up Mark. Last episode, I think it was John I kept bringing up, but this one it's all about Mark because I used to run Bible studies from the book of Mark for all the first year university students who joined our Christian group. And I ran that over a few years. And so I'm quite familiar with them. So this was one of my favorite stories in Mark of Jesus healing um, Jairus's daughter in Mark, but in here, it's not give, he's not given a name. He's a synagogue leader. In Mark, this is a 23 verse story. In Matthew, it is a nine verse story. Which is crazy because in Mark, it, it perfectly captures what is normal for Mark to do, which is he starts one story, he interrupts that story with another mini episode, and then he concludes the story. We call it the Mark and Sandwich, which is probably a bad thing to talk about post just challenging our leaders to fast. Sorry. But like it, it's just so classic Mark to do that type of storytelling is story within a story. And yet now we see a, in an exceptionally shortened version of that here in Matthew, of two healings in an exceptionally short period of time. And they're two really big stories, like mm. where it says um, the discharge of blood for 12 years. Yeah. Like that's a long time. Mm. And then the girl restored to life. Like it's two massive stories, so condensed. Yeah. You just have so many questions. In the Mark version, the girl is also explicitly said to be 12 years old. Mm. And so there's a really nice symmetry of as long as this woman has suffered for mm. is as long as this oh, yeah. little girl has mm. been alive for. Yeah. And Jesus brings healing to both. In Jewish culture, blood is impurity. Like if, if you are bleeding, you are impure. So this woman for 12 years would have been ostracized. And we're straight back to the outcast of society <laughs> where Jesus spends so much of his time. Mm. And like this woman should not have been allowed to touch anyone. Like, because if you are unclean, and you touch someone, you make them unclean. And yet Jesus does the exact opposite. Someone unclean touches him, which is like big social no-no. And rather than him becoming unclean now, he makes her clean and heals her. Mm. Mm. It's great faith of the woman who was bleeding. It's like just saying, if only I touched his cloak. Just a little bit. Just that little. It's like not nothing more, nothing less. Just that little, little bit. And... You know, Jesus returns that in sort of in full, not just not just a minor thing. Actually, good good thought bringing up faith because most of Jesus's miracles mention the faith of the person involved in some way, and I think our society has defined faith incorrectly. And I'm curious, maybe if we shoot around the table and ask, how would you define faith? Like, what is faith to you? Probably believing in something bigger than yourself. Mm, nice. Or I feel like that's very cliche. <laughs> um, yeah. Putting your trust in something or someone. Not only do we have faith over a higher power, but we can also have faith in people, in friends, in in family too. Um, sort of thinking it in that context, I have faith that my family, like if I or uh, if you're at work, I, I have faith that my coworker is going to do their job or do this um i think it's having that trust either in the known and unknown yeah great because i think when i speak to a lot of non-christians specifically they define faith as belief in something without evidence 
And that seems to be the main definition that I encounter when I chat to people. And that's just not the biblical definition of faith. And so when we see this word over and over, I thought it was important to be like, no, faith is grounded in something. Um, Professor John Lennox was one of my heroes when I was growing up. Um, He's an exceptionally intelligent scientist who is a Christian. And he says that faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. In fact, multiple times in the Bible, Jesus specifically says, I'm doing this so that you may have faith. Um, In John, he's like, I'm delaying going to heal Lazarus so that he will die, so that I can raise him from the dead, so that you can have faith. Or he'll say, I'm prophesying this so that when it comes to pass, you will have faith. It's always grounded in something. But the other thing about faith is that it's always future looking. So you could say that it's grounded in evidence but it's trusting in the future based on that evidence. And so the the classic example is a spouse. You've got a lot of trust in them. You trust that they won't ever cheat on you or leave you. Like you, you based on the evidence of your interactions with them, you have faith that that will never happen because faith is future looking, future orientated, but is grounded in something real, grounded in reality. And I think our society doesn't appreciate that definition of faith well enough. So we only have one story left here in Matthew 9, and it really sets up what we're going to look at next episode, which is Jesus' next sermon, which is his sermon to his 12 disciples as he sends them out on a mission. And so I'm thinking we should actually save this little chunk for our next episode because it comes at the very end of chapter nine, but Mm. it just sets up that next sermon so beautifully. Mm. And so stay tuned and we'll come back to it. The demon-possessed man has been one of the ones that I'm not necessarily too familiar with in terms of uh, the miracles. So I think that one sort of really stuck out to to me for both sort of hearing it, I think maybe with more fresh ears and that takeaway of, of Jesus won't forsake anyone yeah they're my takeaways what about you guys i mean my takeaway is the fasting one like i've I felt very convicted in this past hour that Mm. here's something that is expected of us in scripture let's put some thought and time into doing exactly that so that's my takeaway we've already encouraged the the listeners to let us know their experience and i'm curious to see how other people go um my takeaway i think is just the variety of all the miracles um, I think it's a good reminder to look for miracles in everything, whether it's nature, people, um, and just having that full trust in our faith for that. Um, and I think we would love to know if you've experienced any miracles or if mm. you'd like to share any stories. That'd be really cool for us to hear yeah. in our comments. Yeah, share. Or send them in. Send them in. Send in the stories. And also Lachlan's challenge of um, fast, fast this week. Um, see how you go. We also want to know how um, you've you went in your fasting uh, journey. We're gonna we're gonna try it out, and uh, we'd love to to know how you guys went at home as well. As we sort of wrap up, thank you for um, everyone for for listening and um, journeying with us uh, through these through these miracles. Like always, we would love to hear your any feedback questions. Um, about anything that you got out of this passage and share it with a friend. If you enjoy enjoy this, share it with uh, or any, anyone you know or anyone that you, that you think may also need this. This is uh, not only sort of um, 
an interesting, entertaining uh, show for people to watch, but also a learning, a learning tool. And if you, if there's someone in your life that you think, I oh, know this would be great, share it with them. We'd love to reach as many people as possible in this. Um, you can listen to this podcast wherever you consume podcasts, and don't forget to keep up to date with all our social media: Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, the like. Lachlan, can I get you to pray to pray us out? Absolutely. Lord Jesus, thank you for your power. Thank you for the way that we see that displayed in this passage of Scripture. I pray for all the things that us around this table have taken out of your word today that we may put into practice um, and have a great appreciation for you because of that. And I pray the same for our listeners, that any bit of your word that is speaking to them, that they may act upon it and continue, continue pursuing you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone listening, and we'll see you next week. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.